come to learn that theology matters, and it matters not because we want a good grade on a test, but because what we know about God shapes the way we think and live. What you believe about God's nature, what He is like, what He wants from you, and whether or not you will answer to Him affects every part of your life. Theology matters because if we get it wrong, then our whole life will be wrong. I know the idea of studying God often rubs people the wrong way. It sounds cold and theoretical as if God were a frog carcass to dissect in a lab or a set of ideas that we memorize like math groups. But studying God doesn't have to be like that. You can study Him the way you study a sunset that leaves you speechless. You can study Him the way a man studies the wife he passionately loves. Does anyone fault him for noting her every like and dislike? Is it clinical for him to desire to know the thoughts and longings of her heart? Or to want to hear her speak? Knowledge doesn't have to be dry and lifeless. And when you think about it, exactly what is our alternative? Ignorance? Falsehood? We're either building our lives on the reality of what God is truly like and what He's about, or we're basing our lives on our own imagination and misconception. We're all theologians. The question is whether what we know about God is true. this on. I don't think I need this. All right. My name is Jeremy Malkin, for those of you who do not know me, and I serve with the Voice of the Martyrs um, as a director over our ministry in Africa. Uh, my, my family and I are very grateful to ICP, uh, to the community here, um, we really have been encouraged by Pastor Drew and his heart for missions and wanting this to really be a mission-minded church. Uh, briefly, uh, VOM is a ministry that was started by Richard Warmbrand, a Romanian pastor in 1967. Uh, Richard spent 14 years in a communist prison and was tortured during that time. Uh, he wrote several books. Um, one you may have heard of is Tortured for Christ. After Richard's release from prison, the Lord uh, led him to start a mission that would both assist the persecuted church and bring fellowship between the church under persecution and the church in the free world. Um, you can visit our website, persecution.com. Now, I, I thought the video uh, was a good example, or was really good, a good follow-up for last week's sermon that Ian had brought us. Um, reminding us of the importance of spending time with the Lord. It's crucial, really, because like what the video said, uh, you will either look at the world through your own view or through the lens of Scripture. It's either one or the other. Uh, there's no in-between. And in light of the stories that you will hear today about the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, we must filter our thoughts through the lens of Scripture. Um, or else we cannot clearly see him or understand his purposes. We will lose perspective and our hope will come undone, especially in the face of the trials and hardships or suffering that's going to come our way. Spending time each day with the Lord in the Word is an absolute necessity um, for our walk with him. 
And knowing God's word is a, is a necessity in the lives of every believer. Okay, let's see if this PowerPoint's going to work. Are we hooked up? No. <laughs> okay. So I'll be... I'll be saying the word slide quite a bit during my message if I can't flip it from up here. Uh, Isaiah 55.8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Especially in regards to my work, I've been challenged to try to look at each trial through the lens of Scripture, to try to have the heart and the mind and the eyes of Christ when looking at our lives. And isn't that the struggle for all of us as believers? To start the day praying that Christ's will will be done and that our lives will serve his purposes. It's the same message that we must remind ourselves over and over again, but it's different with each new trial that we face and each new stage of life that we enter. We must fly to scripture, soak in his truths, rely on his promises, and then face each new day. Because having God's perspective changes everything. Uh, my family and I moved to Prague um, when our daughter was just three months old, our oldest daughter, uh, just over two years ago. And we came here so that I could work more uh, closely with a Czech colleague of mine, my boss with Voice of the Martyrs, named Peter Yasik, who was overseeing our, our, all of our work in Africa. There he is. Um, nine months into our time in Prague on December 15, 2015, Around midnight, we received a call from Peter's wife, Wanda. She sounded frantic, um, and she was worried because Peter was supposed to come home that evening, um, but when his flight arrived, he wasn't on it. That night sparked a long journey um, in trying to free Peter from prison in Sudan, which I am privileged to relate to you and pray a story will, will be a blessing for all of us. Peter's situation reminds me of that of Joseph when he was in prison. Like Joseph, Peter didn't know how long he would be in prison. During Joseph's imprisonment, he asked the cupbearer to remember him when t talking to Pharaoh and literally, literally said, get me out of this house. I'm sure we've all said that a time or two when in the midst of difficult trials, just hopefully not to your spouse. <laughs> um, but while Peter didn't say those exact words, he did say, uh, after a few months into his own imprisonment, that he was at the point where he was asking God how much longer he would be there. And that very night, God answered his plea. Peter said he was lying on the floor. Each person's face was pretty, or feet were, were pretty much touching the next guy's face because the room was so crowded in the cell where he was staying. The, next, uh, the, the people laying next to him were two Eritrean men who had been arrested for entering the country illegally. And that night, Peter was able to share the gospel with them. And in the next morning, they were gone. Peter never saw them again. Peter said that encounter with those young men reassured him that God had a purpose for his being there. This story has been a huge encouragement to contemplate Peter's imprisonment through God's perspective. God loved those two Eritreans so much that he, in his sovereignty, planted Peter in that prison to speak the, to them the words of life. He sent our beloved brother, my close friend, and his beloved child to a filthy place to be a light and accomplish his purposes 
in bringing people to himself. What a difference it makes to view the situation through God's perspective. In this way, we're reminded how great the love of God is and how amazing his plans are. I mean, just think of, about it. God sent, God gave the gospel to two Eritrean men in a Sudanese prison by a Czech national. Is that not amazing? The whole thing is just so perfectly orchestrated. And that's only one way we saw God uh, work through this situation by bringing light into darkness. How much more is there that we don't know? We can never doubt what God is doing around the world by calling people to himself. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. How does that not give us confidence that the gospel is going forth even in the darkest places of the world where horrific events are unfolding? God is using ways we would never expect in his providence in making his name known and building his kingdom. And through Peter's witness, in a prison in Sudan, God's name was proclaimed. I share this part of Peter's testimony to illustrate the fact that as children of God, there is a design, I'm not keeping up here, <laughs> slide, maybe a, no, okay, anyway. As children of God, there is a design and strategy in our suffering. And that is what I want to study with you this morning from the book of Colossians, which lays out three key points about what we are suffering for, how we are to, how we are to suffer, and what our suffering accomplishes. Okay, I chose, I chose the passage that we're looking at today because it sums up so much of what my family and I have learned, not only through Peter's trial, but also in this ministry working with the persecuted church. And the main message of the sermon is this, uh, slide. The joyful suffering of the saints benefits and builds the body of Christ. Our passage in Colossians teaches us why we are to suffer, how we are to suffer, and what we are suffering for. Now, it's worthy to note that first off in this passage, we are focusing on and learning about suffering from what, what we're focusing on and learning about suffering from in our passage isn't only concentrated on persecution or suffering. It's actually, this part that we're studying is just a blurb of what Peter or Paul was saying in his overall argument. So before we dive into analyzing this text, um, we need to see the specifics of what Paul was writing about um, as it regarded to the, the purpose of his suffering. And to do that, it's always good to look back at the context of what he is really saying. So just as some background, the book of Colossians was written by Paul, who was in prison in Rome at the time. What I love about Colossians is that the purpose of it is both to show the supremacy, sufficiency, and divinity of Christ, um, and how Christians are supposed to live in the world before God. And you can see that in Colossians chapter 3. So we need to keep that in mind, as Paul intended us to, of who Christ is and what he has done for us. I'm going to read a few verses leading up to our passage, and I want you to really dwell on these verses and soak them in. As this passage is so powerful and, I, um, and rich in how it talks about Christ and who he is and what he has done. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Colossians 1.13, or, or you can follow along on the screen. Next. 
Perfect. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now we come to the verses I want to really dig into, but we must go into it remembering who it is we serve and why we serve him. Our desire should be to, be, to give Christ first place in everything. Then Paul, next Paul really gets personal about his life and hones in on how he puts Christ in everything, and the first way he does that is sharing about his sufferings for the Lord. Uh, next slide. First off, why Christians experience suffering or persecution? Why do we experience suffering? We know throughout the life of Paul, um, he suffered a lot, not only imprisonment. And he says that in his sufferings, he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does this mean? How does the suffering believer, how do you and I, fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions or suffering? Well, we know what Paul did not mean, that he could improve on the atoning work of the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that the perfect sacrifice had made, he had made on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the justification of our lives before a holy God. It was complete. Nothing we can, do, can add to that and there's nothing we can do to improve upon it. Our very security as believers rests in Jesus' redemptive and final atonement as carried out on the cross. Yet our suffering is intended to accomplish something called filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Slide. John Piper explains it well. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not the perfection of the value of its atoning worth, but the personal presentation to those for whom he paid the price. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the sufferings he experienced so that when we proclaim the cross as the way to life, people will see the marks of the cross in us and feel the love of the cross from us that Christ's affliction would be seen and known among the nations. So basically, Paul was undergoing the persecution 
that was intended, meant for Christ. And it's the same with us, since enemies of Christ still hate us today, and they will, they will continue to hate us. As John fifteen twenty says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul spoke of his wounds as carrying the marks of Jesus in Galatians 6, 17. In his wounds, people could see Christ's wounds. The point, the point of bearing the marks of Jesus is that Jesus might be seen and his love might be powerfully, and his love, I'm sorry, let me, <laughs> the point of bearing the marks of Jesus is that Jesus might be seen and his love might work powerfully in those who see And persecution is a promise for those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, says 2 Timothy 3.12. The degree degree of persecution in our own lives will vary, but as believers, we can expect persecution to come. Um, I am reminded of this truth every single day. I have an amazing opportunity to visit and see the church in other countries and meet with brothers and sisters uh, who have undergone tremendous amounts of persecution. Uh, But it really hit home with when Peter, my colleague and friend, was put in prison. Even though hearing about persecution is is a daily reality for me, it becomes personal and real when it's someone you know, just like anything in life. And that's how it was for me and my family, and for Wanda's family. Wanda, Peter's wife, said that Peter Being in prison had always been her greatest fear, as it would be for many of us. But since persecution is a promise and living in a sinful world is a reality, um, we all will suffer as children of God in one form or another. But what Paul is reminding us is that in so doing, we are in fact filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We finish what they were designed for, Namely, a personal presentation to the world of of people who do not know about the infinite worth of Christ's sufferings. What the passage is teaching us is that our suffering is about Christ, not ourselves. As Christ says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my name's sake and the gospel will save it, Mark 8.35. When Paul uh, wrote Colossians, He was experiencing the persecution intended for Christ. Again, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is not enough to read our Bibles. It is not enough to come to church on Sunday morning to follow the commandments. I mean, even the Pharisees did that, right? Um, Again, I like how, how John Piper says this. Switch. Godliness is so being ravished by God, so satisfied by God, so filled with God, so driven by Jesus that you live in a way that, only, that the only explanation for your life is the promise of God raising you from the dead. Our trust is in Christ, and reliance on his promises of our new life in him and with him drives all of the decisions and risks that we make for his name's sake. That is the way the church must live, and that is how the Great Commission will be accomplished. It is all about Christ. It's not about us. Uh, Before I began working in Africa, I served um, for about 
five years working with the church in the Middle East, which included Afghanistan. And a family I greatly respect and admired um, were the, the Groenwalds from South Africa. Next slide. Werner Groenwald, uh, his wife Honolly, and their two children, Jean-Pierre and Rodi, had been serving in Af Afghanistan since 2002. Werner's main passion was teaching at a seminary uh, that he had started. The seminary offered really the best Bible training that anybody could receive inside Afghanistan. And that was really Werner's heart, to disciple and raise up uh, leaders in Afghanistan uh, who could, um, would be prepared to take the gospel and shepherd the church um, in, a, in a country that's completely opposed to Christ. And where the relatively few number of believers uh, who face tremendous persecution and are often killed for their faith um, could, again, uh, grow and know what it meant to follow Christ. And I think it's important to note that many people, including those inside Afghanistan, disagreed with some of Werner's decisions, mainly in light of the security aspect. Um, to disciple local believers was extremely dangerous, and people knew that you could be killed for it if it was found out. But Werner was obedient uh, to the call God had on his life, despite the cost to him and his family. It was a dangerous mission, but he knew the risks was necessary for the building of the church in Afghanistan. The last time I saw the Groenwalds, uh, Jean-Pierre Werner's 17-year-old son talked about um, which college he was going to go to. He was planning to go to Moody Bible Institute. He wanted to be a missionary pilot. Uh, their 15-year-old daughter, Rhody, um, was just telling me what it was like for a teenage girl to live in Afghanistan. Truthfully, she didn't like it. <laughs> Um, but she knew that her parents were called there, and that meant God had called her there as well. And that's where she was supposed to be. She tried to deal with it as best she could, as any teenage girl could, having to cover her head every time she walked outside, and just everything that goes with living in that culture. On November 29th, uh, three gunmen, members of the Taliban, broke into Werner's house, killing the guard who was a believer. Uh, they then went up to the basement, down to the basement, where a group of Afghan believers were actually praying and worshiping that day. And they opened fire, killing one Afghan believer, uh, shooting and wounding uh, Werner, and injuring three others. After leaving the room, uh, Werner tried to get upstairs uh, to his children, uh, but it was too late. Jean-Pierre was shot nine times. Rody was shot seven times. Uh, they were in their room studying for their exams. It was likely Werner was killed on his way up to them. And when the police showed up, uh, there was a gunfight. Um, Taliban were either shot or they um, uh, detonated their, their vests. And this, this is the after effect of what happened to, to Werner's house. Uh, just a month before this attack took place, uh, Werner was actually preaching on a Sunday morning and he said, uh, we die only once, we might as well die for Jesus. Werner and Honolly, his wife, knew the risks of moving their family to Afghanistan. And their decision to move there was an obedience to Christ's call in their life. They knew they may suffer, and they were willing to suffer whatever may come because the Lord, um, because of their trust, was in Christ alone. Here we are, Honolly said, God 
Take our lives and make with us whatever you find pleasing and good in your purpose. And, yeah. Werner was a friend of mine, and the murder of, his, uh, of him and his children uh, was, was difficult for me, my family and I to bear. Um, but the only thing that really helped um, was reminding ourselves to view the situation through the lens of Scripture and not through my own flesh. Werner's death and the death of his children was a severe reminder that our lives are nothing apart from who we are in Christ. God used Werner and his family to grow his church in an extremely dark place. And all I can do today is, is worship and praise God uh, for being sovereign over it all and to meditate on his redeeming character and hold on uh, to the promise of our promised victory that the church in Afghanistan will rise up out of the ash and that God will redeem Werner and his children's death for his glory. Again, the joyful suffering of the saints is for the benefit and building of the church of God. It's all about Christ. It's all about his bride. Therefore, we know that God will use Werner's death and the death of his children to bring others to himself and he will continue building his church. So we know why we suffer. We are experiencing the persecution intended for Christ. We are filling up what is lacking in his afflictions. But Colossians further instructs us on how we are to endure suffering for his name. Slide. Notice the word rejoice in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Sometimes it's easy to look at Paul as kind of a, a spiritual giant who's hard to attain because the practicality of all of this is, is not easy. How many of us rejoice in our sufferings, um, in our daily annoyances through life, let alone through imprisonment or torture? But our pastor, but but our uh, my pastor in the states reminds me of this truth all the time, that this is really supposed to be normative Christianity. This is what all of us need to be need to be and should be doing. The Bible calls us to rejoice or have joy in the midst of our suffering. To do so, um, it's helpful if we can remind ourselves of a few truths that that we'll see in Scripture. Uh, First, the Holy Spirit will empower us to rejoice in our suffering. It's not our own doing. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, where are you at here? 1, 6 through 7. Paul says, You received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Notice joy in trials is the work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us. Second, joy in our assurance that Christ, there is joy in our assurance that Christ is being magnified in our suffering. This can be seen in our passage in Colossians. It's the whole point of what we just studied, right? Paul says he rejoices because it's for your sake, the church in Colossae's sake. So when we suffer, remember that God is using you for the church. The third truth to focus on um, in how we rejoice in our sufferings is to fixate our minds on the reward. 
We choose joy by fixing our eyes on the promises and rewards set before us. Slide. Uh, One more. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Found in Matthew. Moreover, there is joy in knowing God is using our suffering to deepen the assurance and our hope in Christ. Slide. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James 1, 2 through 4 reiterates this point. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. During trials, suffering, persecution, God is using it to benefit and build the body of Christ. But he also uses it to sanctify each of us, to perfect us. Uh, My family and I were with Peter the other day, and my wife asked him, you know, what was one of the things that he, that really stood out to him Um, that he learned most, or that God taught him while he was in prison. And Peter said, really, that it was learning how to wait on the Lord. He learned what it was to wait on God. He said God used that time to show him a lot of stuff in his own life to get rid of, um, what to remove that was hindering his walk with Christ. His first few months in prison were really the hardest, Uh, Next slide. He was beaten by radical Muslims when he was in prison. He was routinely hit on the head, um, often called a filthy pig, simply because he was the only Christian there. Forced to clean the toilets with his bare hands. And at other times, well, at one time, he was nearly tortured and strangled. Um, But the Lord really just kind of rescued him just in time. And it's an amazing story. One of the inmates that shared a cell with him during the early days of his imprisonment um, boasted about how he had um, beheaded Egyptian Christians on a beach in Libya just a year earlier, if you, some of you may remember that story. And he actually showed Peter how he could strangle a man with a clothesline. Again, those first few months were the hardest because, he, because Peter was focused on when he would be released, when the Lord would would rescue him. But the longer he was in prison, the more patient and content he became. And that, really, that, that contentment, that patience, is what Peter called the miracle of God. He started to see that with Muslims, those who shared a cell with him, uh, his actions were more important than words. And uh, that he needed to be there a long time so that they would see his faith through action. He needed to be there so that he could share the gospel with them through his actions. And that's just one reason why the Lord had him there. Peter says he looked, um, during that time, he looked back at throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of Scripture, and realized how long God called certain people to wait. Most people, really. I mean, think of the stories of, of Abraham and Moses and Noah, just to name a few. Um, who waited years for God to fulfill his promises to them. 
And waiting is a huge lesson, while waiting is a huge lesson learned um, by Peter, it is also a lesson that he wanted us to learn. Because in that waiting, uh, we are able, we are producing hope, hope in God, and obtaining the steadfastness that we otherwise not, might not experience during our trials. I'm going to make a general claim here, but I, I think it, it kind of applies to all of us. I think most of us are not very good at waiting, especially as 21st century Christians. Uh, it makes sense though, right? We live, uh, we're, we're used to instant gratification. We have the internet, we have cell phones. We can hop on a flight and be on the other side of the world in a day. Um, we don't like to wait because a lot of the time there is no need for us to wait. Uh, so when God calls us to wait on him in our walk with him, it can be a very, very hard lesson for us to learn. Uh, there's one story that I continually think about, it comes back to my mind, um, that was especially convicting to my wife and I, uh, that really illustrates this point well. Uh, from the island of Zanzibar, I met a, a young lady named Miriam, uh, who exemplifies this type of faith. Uh, she's the one on the right there. Hearing about Christ on satellite television, she sought, she sought after him by approaching a local pastor who gave her a Bible. Believing God's word of, as truth, she eventually committed her life to Christ. But persecution soon followed. Miriam's family began beating her and mistreating her. She decided to flee her home not knowing where she was going to go. Um, and she ended up catching a ferry from the island of Zanzibar to mainland Tanzania in Dar es Salaam. She walked the streets around the capital city of Tanzania for a while and finally decided just to sleep under a building where there was a guard nearby, hoping that maybe he would protect her. Well, she ended up sleeping there for, and praying there for three days. And eventually, the guard took pity on her and gave her a, little, a few shillings, which amounted to really less than a dollar, so she could find something to eat. But even as she describes this small amount that this guard gave her, uh, she, when she tells me the story, she had tears in her eyes just over thankfulness of God's provision for her in that moment because she was able to eat. Waiting is a big part of the Christian walk of faith. Miriam had to wait on the streets for three days for God to provide. An ordinary woman showing or, putting ordinary trust in an extraordinary God who promises to provide in his own way and in his own time. I think what is especially convicting about hearing her story uh, which my wife likes to point out, is that to wait for three days on the street really may not feel like God is providing, right? It may have the opposite effect on us. Um, you know, we might think, God, why have you forgotten me? But Miriam, only a new believer, trusted God for those three days while waiting on him to provide. What a precious story. What a precious reminder Praise God that Miriam's circumstances soon improved. The Lord used a Muslim woman uh, who was friends with the guard that took her in, knowing that housing a convert uh, could be put her own life in danger, but she did it anyway. Miriam was later taken in by a Christian family and found temporary jobs, but her employment didn't last long. And when, at the point uh, when I had the opportunity to meet her, uh, Miriam was sharing her concerns to me that she was about to get kicked out of her house and she couldn't afford the next six months' rent 
which her landlord expected from her. And it was, it was only like $100, and VOM was e you know, easily able to provide it. But in doing so, I'll never forget the response that Miriam had. Rather than first thanking me for helping, her immediate reaction was to fall on her knees, crying and lifting her hands, praising God for his provision, just saying prayers of thanksgiving. Miriam knew where that money came from. For Miriam, her new faith in Christ was devoid of any self-reliance, partly because her belief in him stripped her of everything she had. But she waited on God to provide for all her needs. Miriam came to see that the question wasn't if God would provide, but when he would provide. The object of her focus was in her assurance in this extraordinary God who had proven himself faithful and would continue to be faithful. Her trust was put in his faithful hands, and she right, rightly gave uh, thanks to the one who had provided and will continue to provide for her. Walking with God every day means that you're like a child, really holding your parents' hand, expectful, trustful, joyful, and above all, uh, completely dependent on him and him alone. Uh, next slide. Isaiah 64.4 says, From of old one has... No one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eyes has seen a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. This is a lesson we all need to learn, to wait on God knowing he will provide in his time. May we trust in our great God as he desires us to. Now, I kind of I went on a side trail there uh, talking about waiting on God, although waiting and rejoicing really do go hand in hand. But going back to our point about rejoicing, God, whose spirit will empower us to rejoice in difficult circumstances, says that the reason for rejoicing is for Christ to be magnified and for our future hope and reward in heaven, knowing also that it is God's sanctifying work in our own lives. Rejoicing in our suffering reminds me of a trip that I did to, well, I realize what time it is. <laughs> How are we doing, guys? <laughs> Stories are great. What, what time do we need to close it up here? Yeah. Man, this went a lot quicker when I was <laughs> rehearsing it. Um, oh, there's so much good stuff. Uh, rejoicing in our suffering reminds me of a trip that I did to the Nuba Mountains in Sudan. Now, this, this is a picture of an area in the Nuba Mountains called Dalami. Really, you hike up to these, these mountains where there's 40,000 believers living literally in caves. Um, if you change the slide there, uh, this, is, this is one of their homes under the ground where they live. Uh, one more slide. These, these children I was hiding in the caves with when a, when a plane overhead was dr trying to drop bombs on the, on the area. Um, they live in fear constantly. On a Sunday morning while having breakfast uh, with some of those living in this, with the pastors living up in those mountains who lived in caves, we counted 40 shells go off in the distance in the period of one hour. Um, but when the, when the rocket stopped, we walked over to the outdoor church service where these Sudanese brothers and, Christ, uh, brothers and sisters praised Christ um, it, with such joy that you would never know by merely looking at them the intense suffering that they were enduring and the perseverance that they were at that very moment displaying. This is them worshiping 
literally less than an hour after 40 shells go off within your, I mean, you could see the, the effects. I kept thinking of, of Hebrews 11, speaking of those who by faith wandered in mountains and in dens and in caves of whom the world was not worthy, because that, literally speaking, was these people. Uh, if we return to our verse in James, James 1, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How do we know? By understanding scripture, by recalling God's promises. We know because we have God's word. Here we see that joy is the result of biblical knowledge which enables us to see our trials through God's perspective rather than our own perspective. So in conclusion, uh, change slide, yeah, you got it. Nope, one more, yep. The Calvary Road is not a joyless, joyless road. It is a painful one, but it is pro- a profoundly happy one. When we choose the fleeting pre- pleasures of comfort and security over the sacrifices and suffering of missions and evangelism and ministry and love, we choose against joy. There's one more point I want to make really, really briefly before we close out here. Um, when we go back to our Colossians passage, verse 25 says that amidst our suffering, we are to pro- proclaim the gospel of Christ. Paul calls us this the stewardship from God that was given to him and make the wor- to make the word of God fully known. The passage goes on in verse 28 and 29. In him... Or, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is a servant of the church and a steward of God. His charge is to take the word of God to the nations and to offer them the hope of glory. Remember the verses previous to this proclaims the excellencies of Christ, which we read together. He is to be first in everything, even in our suffering. In taking the, the gospel to unreached people, whether that be your neighbor or colleague or as a missionary across the ocean, it often requires sacrifice and suffering, a losing of life or a denying of self, right? Just as God sent my friend Peter to prison in Sudan to share the gospel with radical ISIS affiliates and jihadists. This is how God makes his name known in the world through the suffering of his church. And this is how great, uh, this is how the, how the Great Commission will be accomplished. I really hate to do this, but I'm going to skip the next story so that we can move a little quicker. But it's incredible if you want to ask me after the service. Um, go ahead and move up two slides. Um, where are we at? Yeah, uh, okay, that's, that's fine right there. Um, a story that comes to mind about proclaiming the gospel amidst suffering is that of an Indian brother uh, who lives in North India, who rides his bicycle from village to village where there are no churches and no Christians. Uh, When he arrives in the village, he bangs on his drums uh, until a crowd shows up, and then he preaches the gospel. That's what he does. My colleague asked him, so then what happens next? Well, he said, you know, sometimes... um, it's, it's just so wonderful. They hear the gospel, and God changes their hearts, and people come to Christ, and a new church is planted in that village. Um, and then my colleague asked him, well, what about the other times? Well, the other times, they beat me, he said. They beat you? Yes, they beat me. <laughs> colleague said, man, brother, I'm sorry. Uh, what do you do then? And he said, well, when I wake up, 
I get back on my bike, and I ride to the next village. Wow. <laughs> this brother, this uh, brother's evangelism strategy may sound a bit extreme, especially to those of us from the West, uh, but what an example of the sacrifice and suffering required of us to take the gospel to both our neighbors and to the nations. Those, these brothers are taking the truth of Scripture and living them out. What an encouraging, convicting testimony that they are to the rest of us. We need to pray for the same boldness, uh, the same heart, the same steadfastness. We hold the, the pearl of great price. We shouldn't be hiding it. But on the flip side of this, God is working. We need to remember that. He will continue to work. And praise God, he will still work in us in spite of ourselves. That we can be assured of. What a great God we serve. By the way, this photo I just found randomly on the internet, so I have no idea who this guy is, but I, I needed, a, needed a picture of India. So, <laughs> um, so partly to conclude this message, our passage in Colossians teaches us why we are to suffer to fill up Christ's afflictions, how we are to suffer with joy, and what we are suffering for to proclaim the gospel. Not only is suffering required for the proclamation of the gospel, but it also is for the benefit of the church. We've all heard the famous quote from Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When talking with Peter earlier this week, I was again reminded um, of how Peter's suffering benefited the church, both in Sudan and in the Czech Republic. Um, I'm, I was going to share, just real briefly, I'll just make this quick, a couple ways that it's benefited the church. Um, here in, in the Czech Republic, I mean, I can't tell you how many Czechs I've come across who just said, man, I thought persecution was, was in the past. But to see my brother, my, my countryman going through it um, just makes it real to me, and I see what God is doing. Peter's home church uh, started a prayer, prayer and chasting, fasting chain when he was first arrested, and that prayer and fasting chain continues to this day because they saw how important it was. One, one man we met from Peter's church said it breathed life into the church. Um, so those are just a few examples. Peter, is, he couldn't speak with you this morning because he's at another church speaking. He's speaking every single Sunday, and hopefully we'll get him here soon. How did it breathe life into the church in Sudan? Um, I can tell you that when he was in prison, when they were in their cells, you would think, oh, all the Christians must have ran and hide. There must have been fear. Well, that wasn't the case. In fact, under persecution, the church becomes more bold. And there's one story when Peter was in chains with two other Sudanese brothers waiting to go on trial. Christians from the Nuba Mountains of Sudan came in by the busloads to stand outside their cell and to encourage them. And Peter and these Sudanese brothers started hearing singing. And it brought tears uh, to their eyes um, because it was a song about how David had defeated Goliath in their native language. And sometimes... We need to sing, we need the Goliaths in our life to sing God's praises um, about how God um, will overcome. Uh, so I've accounted a lot of stories about believers all over the world, um, but what about us? How do we apply this passage to our lives? What should these stories, um, how should they affect us? What do we do? Um, well, I mean, Paul really spells it out if you continue reading through Colossians, it's so clear. 
Uh, so what do you do? Go home and really meditate on Colossians this week. <laughs> um, but here's, here's a couple things. Um, Colossians 2, 6 through 7, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We can't have joy during trials if we don't have joy when we're without trials. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If when you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Setting our minds on the purpose, it, on the purpose of our trials will help us through them. But every day we are to set our mind on things above, so we are prepared when trials come. Uh, Colossians three fifteen through 17, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Joy is our calling as Christians, and especially joy in the body of Christ. And as we started off, we can only do this through the word dwelling in us. Do not forsake your time with God every day. It's crucial for us to be able to carry our cross in the world. Last one, Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us the door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Prayer is the key. Prayer shows our reliance on God and God alone. Prayer breathes life into the church. Uh, this is my prayer for this church as well. So let's, let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for our morning together. We thank you for your word in Colossians. Father, we um, thank you for the testimonies of those who have given their lives, who have suffered for your name's sake. Father, to... Uh, display the afflictions of Christ that others may know you um, and who rejoice amidst those reflections, Father. And, and we know that they do it for the benefit of us, the body of Christ, Lord. So I pray that we would live out the same, not using others as an example, but using Christ alone as our example, Father. That we would know your word, that we would meditate on you, um, Lord, and that you would make of us as you will uh, for the sake of your name and for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen.